millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about making work better. Hello, I'm Bruce Daisley. Hope you're well. Hope your return to the office is going well. I found myself on the tube at 8am uh, one morning this week and the carriage was full. Interestingly, it was sort of a very different usage pattern to the evening and weekend. I've been using the tube quite a lot. The, the tube in the evenings and the mornings tends to have a lot of younger people, most of them not with masks on. Uh, the, the tube carriage this morning was... Um, was full of people wearing sort of tight-fitting masks, a few N95 masks. So, so obviously people sort of concerned about their safety. Very different to what was going on. I, I've been using the tube a lot. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm quite heavily vaccinated, actually, and uh, I've sort of been getting on with life. I went to see a, um, a gig last week. I went to see Kid Leroy uh, about two weeks ago. And, and to be honest, it was so crowded and so immensely chock-a-block i didn't post any images of it just in case they ended up as my epitaph and people said uh he's just died of covid and is it any wonder after he went to this gig a couple of weeks ago but um i've been going to a few things and looks you know celebrating the the fact that science is giving us a return of life but it was just interesting to see the tube that was sort of so full of people i think uh being forced back to the office in some capacity uh, and it's been really interesting, the, the sort of chatting to, to different organisations, the, the companies that I generally talk to on a, a daily basis. Now, I, guess, I guess I've chatted to about 60, almost 60 firms now over the course of the, the last few months. And firms are obviously wrestling with the same themes. In, in my discussions, I've been working with them and they've been telling me stories about gradual reintegration, the challenges they're experiencing. One of the things that's become really clear is the surprising upside of remote work that many firms saw last year has disappeared a little. So what do I mean by that? Well, when we first went into lockdown, certainly in the UK, many bosses saw it as a way to break down barriers and have meetings with more junior parts of the business. And so what we were often seeing was we were seeing sort of pulse scores of of people saying, yeah, we've had more bosses come in or people in remote offices or in uh, different cities, different countries were saying, yeah, we've had more face time with leaders than we've ever had. And what I'm getting the impression of is that while that was really celebrated as a connection of senior leadership into the firm in a crisis time, um, actually, it's disappeared a bit in the, the last few months. And so we've seen a sort of decline in that engagement. I guess it's all relevant. Um, I am going to put out a, a podcast about the uh, the book, What You Do Is 
is who you are uh, and that's coming uh, as the part of the that sort of August reading that will probably come next and one of the things he talks about in that book is is peacetime leadership and wartime leadership and I guess to some extent what we saw in the first part of lockdown was that there was a bit of wartime leadership, over-communicate, people doing a little more. And we moved very quickly into a peacetime version of, of remote working. And I guess reflected then in now workers saying they don't feel as connected as maybe they did before. So interesting. Um, I, some Something else that someone said to me was that the maybe through a combination of sort of social awkwardness and not having seen people in a couple of years, but their own visits to the office were characterised by realising how few colleagues they actually recognised. Yeah, and, and I know sort of we've now got into nice rhythms of doing calls with the people that we do calls with and, you know, maybe sort of broader um, meetings where there's sort of hundreds of people on them. But... I think what a few people have, have reported to me is that those loose connections that you might have had in the office before, um, we don't have them as much. And because we're going back into the office, we don't necessarily recognise people. It's not the, They're not necessarily finding it easy to, to start those discussions, which I guess brings me on to today's podcast. So today's podcast is uh, for anyone who's got an appetite for psychology, really. It's by two authors of a brand new book that I was interested to check out. I generally, when all of the, the new books uh, are listed in the publisher's catalogue, I sort of scan through them, have a look at books that I think might be of interest. And this was one of the ones that stood out. I found myself reading a lot of popular psychology and and often sort of going back and reading the source papers that led to them. And the work that today's guests talk about is work that I'm sort of very familiar with and I find their take on it quite um, intriguing. So uh, I think it really can give us interesting pointers about the, the state of work that we're currently in and the themes that we're going to see emerging um, Firstly, I mean, across work. Secondly, across the whole of society, really. So, you know, the themes we're going to be talking about today are really the importance of identity. And the book is called The Power of Us. It's all about the power of, of being part of a group. And uh, the, I guess the very nature of being part of an us means there's also a them. And what we generally find is that those themes that are often reductively described as identity politics, us versus them, the goodies versus the baddies, the, the our side versus the other side, we're often told those stories um, when we're told about how it's been misappropriated by politicians or leaders or or it's actually led to bad consequences. But actually... What you'll discover is that identity actually is, is one of the strongest sources of our own uh, sense of belonging and strength and well-being. So it's incredibly potent, even if it is often misappropriated. So uh, as we're going to discuss, I think one of the things that you can probably find most interesting is that a lot of leaders, a lot of organisations have talked about things like mission or values. But what we what we really find is that those things work best where rather than sort of a series of words or a, a series of sort of objectives, what we find is that they work best when there's a shared sense of collective identity. And look, that might sound slightly similar to some of the stuff that we discussed on the last episode about the All Blacks. In fact, I think Jay brings up the All Blacks. 
Um, but I, I think it's probably an illustration of is a growing recognition that identity is a really critical part of good workplace cultures. And I think personally, as we go into the next stage of trying to make how hybrid working work, actually understanding how to create collective identity is going to be the breakthrough skill that I think uh, any good organisation or any leader is going to have. So, like I say, if you are interested in psychology, you're going to love this one. We kick off with a brief discussion of some of the psychological theory that goes into the discussion, and it'll help you understand some of the big themes. So let me introduce it. This is a discussion with Jay Van Bavel and Dominic Packer. And as you'll hear, they're both Canadian psychologists practicing in the US. Their book, The Power of Us, is out this week. Here's my discussion with Jay and Dominic. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I thought to kick off, I wonder if you could both introduce yourselves and explain who you are. Sure. I'm uh, Dominic Packer. I'm a professor of social psychology at Lehigh University, which is in Pennsylvania in the United States. And along with Jay, who will introduce himself in a moment, uh, I'm about to publish a book called The Power of Us. Hi, my name is Jay. I am an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University and uh, co-author with Dominic on The Power of Us. I, I was particularly taken with, uh, with, with seeing this book and, and seeing uh, sort of pe- a few people I follow on social media talk about this book. And in the last 12 months, I've really sort of gone deep on themes of community and how important it is to be part of sort of a, a group bonded to, to like-minded individuals. Now, this is what psychologists would call broadly sort of social identity theory, as, as I understand uh, the the main thing. Now, I've been interested till now because so, social identity theory and, and its association, I've really seen as this European thing, and this might be a bit of geeky psychology. And so I was really intrigued. I've just discovered from uh, Dominic that you're both Canadian, but I was really, I was really intrigued whether that's right, is this something that isn't necessarily that popular yet in the US or how would you see the, the, the way that that sort of global perspective on it? There is really two camps, you know, almost like exactly like social identity theory would predict. There was like one group of people and the in-group uh, was really focused in Europe and especially the UK and Australia. And they were interested in how group dynamics unfold and the social context people were in and that kind of rich aspect of social interaction. Um, the other group, to them, seen as the out group, uh, was the North American approach uh, for many decades, which was focused on social cognition, which was understanding the mechanisms of the mind and how we think about things like stereotypes. But it was very individualistic. It was very situated within one individual. And what we've tried to do with our book and in our research for the last 20 years is marry those two perspectives because we don't see them as adversarial but complementary. Um, so that when we're looking at group dynamics and this rich social context that um, is where most of human life happens, but also it's how the brain evolved was in small groups interacting and trying to figure out how to form coalitions and work together and cooperate, um, but using a lot of the tools and methods that were pioneered and developed uh, in North America, social psychology. And so we're basically trying to bring all those together in this book to give people powerful insights about what's going on when you look underneath the hood inside the minds uh, as they're thinking about groups and group dynamics. So I'm just scanning my bookshelves for a book. I can't spot it, but I bought it in graduate school. It came out right then, uh, about 15 years ago at this point. And it was sort of the two perspectives, the European perspective of social identity and groups and the North American perspective on social cognition. And how could these be brought together? And I think we both looked at that book and read it at the time and were inspired to try to do so. Not just us, I mean, other people have done that as well, but um, many of our intellectual heroes 
within the American context, one in particular we both ended up working with at Ohio State University is Marilyn Brewer. And she sort of made her career as an American, but drawing deeply on this, this rich vein of intellectual work out of the UK and Australia and Europe. For, the, for those who have now had their appetite whetted, um, what, what are, but you know, if you're going to try and summarize, what is social cognition theory and what is social identity theory? So social cognition very much focuses on what are the ways in which the mind and ultimately the brain process information about the social world? It's really looking at the individual level of the mind and trying to understand how is it that when you, for example, see somebody's face, you process the visual information that it's exhibiting, whether it's the emotion they're showing or the tone of their skin or any other kind of information that you're you know, receiving into the eye, how is it processed giving rise to categorization so that you group them as male or female or a member of a particular race or nationality? And then what are the consequences of that categorization for the expectations you have for that person, for example? So you look at things like stereotyping or prejudices that can arise, but it really is focusing in on those processes that often unfold very rapidly. You know, when you encounter someone in the world within the next, you know, 100 milliseconds, your brain is already registering all kinds of information about them and then drawing inferences and making predictions and causing you to behave in particular ways. And so absolutely, this is crucial for understanding how people navigate the social world, but it's a bit different than a perspective that starts not so much with what's going on in the mind of the perceiver, but starts to think about how do groups relate to each other? People are in groups. How is their psychology influencing the relations between those? Social cognition is nicely captured, the approach, in Danny Kahneman's work. And so he had a, a best-selling book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's all about how the mind works when you're thinking rapidly versus like when you're able to deliberate and reflect and try to like mitigate some of your biases. Um, although he's coming at it from a different perspective, that is the dominant approach in North America, this kind of dual process, these different parts of the mind at work. And, you know, what happens when you're distracted or under cognitive load? Um, what kind of mistakes do you make? And what we're focusing on here is bringing in that aspect of identity to think of, you know, that's one perspective, but it's pretty narrow because, you know, our identities affect parts of our unconscious and they're nudging us in ways that we don't even realize all the time. Um, they also change how we reason and deliberate. So sometimes we're engaged, engaged in motivated reasoning to try to rationalize the behavior of our group. Or when people are in cults, one of the things we talk about is what happens when your cult is proven wrong. You know, they make like a prophecy and it's, and it's falsified. Um, you, as you reason about it, you might think that people would realize this is a bad identity group to be part of. I should leave it. Um, but instead, they're feeling enormous cognitive dissonance. And they not only stick with the group, but some of them double down on the group and they start trying to convert other people to join the group. And so identities and, and the groups we belong to can have a powerful influence over all of these parts of our mental life. Why, why it's so intriguing, I think, is that actually it's impossible not to look at the last 12 months societally and come away with the sense that group identity has played a really significant part in the way that politics and news has played out. So whether that might be the, the way that we perceive our own affinity towards masks or our own affinity towards vaccines has actually been determined to some extent by group identity. People who, who see themselves as a certain way or might label themselves in a certain way certainly are more inclined to act in different ways. Um, I saw something where on 
Uh, a guy was in Missouri, a 31-year-old guy was in Missouri, found himself in hospital uh, with COVID. And his explanation to a news crew, I was just looking at it earlier today, his explanation to a news crew was that I come from a really strong conservative family. And it's such an interesting group identity because had someone said to you two years ago that a label of conservatism, rather than being about fiscal prudence or a social uh, traditionalism, would be about an avoidance of vaccines, you would have said, oh, that doesn't necessarily seem consistent with that identity. So our identities have played a really important part. Um, and was, was that one of the reasons why you wanted to write about the power of people being in groups, about being us? Yeah, I, this is something that we've been studying is the, the group dynamics of the pandemic. And so I'll just tell you about a couple projects that we've run that really unveil what's going on. So as you mentioned, in America, the way that we've been tackling the pandemic has been uh, really a massive failure. It's a failure of leadership because since the very beginning of the pandemic, it's been framed through partisan identities. So you have Republicans, uh, starting with Donald Trump and, and uh, his supporters, who have resisted taking the pandemic seriously since day one. They resisted engaging in social distancing. They resisted wearing masks. Now they're uh, most of the people who are resisting getting vaccinated. So I saw data as of yesterday, only 3% of Democrats don't plan to get vaccinated, where 30, 32% of Republicans don't plan to get vaccinated. So that's 10 times as many people in that one identity group. And, and to them, it's been seen through the lens of identity. So Trump at one point even said, if you wear a mask, it's a symbol of disloyalty uh, to him and, and his party. Um, the way that it could have been handled and was handled in many other countries was at, through the shared identity of a, of a national purpose. So I'll, I'll give a shout out here to New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Um, she decided in the early stage of the pandemic that it was a global crisis and they needed to tackle it together at the national level. And so she famously referred to New Zealanders as her team of 5 million people. Um, she followed the same rules as everybody else. So a key part of effective identity leadership is that you hold yourself to the same standards as everybody else. Uh, in the UK, one of the big failures was when Dominic Cummings broke the rules that the government had set. And so people will be reluctant to follow leaders if they're not uh, holding themselves to the same standards as citizens. And so I'll say this project that Dominic and I uh, and 250 other authors ran um, during the beginning of the pandemic, we collected data from 67 countries around the world, including you know, uh, in the UK and in, in the United States, but many other countries. And what we found one of the biggest predictors of is people willing to follow the public health guidelines was national identity. And so national identity gets a bad rap um, because people think it comes with like uh, uh, you know distrust of outsiders and immigrants, um, but there is a very healthy, important part of national identity, which is it's a really key thing that leaders can use to rally people to do something that's important for the collective. And in a pandemic, the key is getting people to do something that's not always just for them, but to save their family, to save their coworkers, to save their community, to save their country. And so using this shared identity is incredibly important in a crisis. I mean, I think the pandemic, as Jay is saying, illustrates the power of identity. What our book is fundamentally all about is that it's, it's, there's two sides to it. Identities can be used for great good, but they can also be put to bad purposes as well, or at least cause people to, to see things and make 
you know, not non-optimal choices. And, and we totally see this playing out throughout the pandemic, where on the one hand, in some places, especially there's this rallying around common purpose and common cause, whether it's a national identity or some other aspect of the self. And then in other places, leaders made different choices. And the United States is probably the best example of it, of, of politicizing it, where it's now an issue of being conservative versus being liberal. And as soon as you do that, it fractures your society and you start getting this oppositional kind of behavior and one of the things we talk a lot about in the book is this idea that ultimately all reality for people is social reality. So something like a pandemic is this hugely complex event, right? It's incredibly hard to understand. Almost nobody alive has ever lived through anything like this before. And when we encounter things like that, we have to look to other people to make sense of them. And although you might say it's, well, rational, you should listen to the Surgeon General, you should listen to scientific experts, even they are sort of in an ongoing way, making sense of it. And things change over time and they get conflicting advice. And so it's perfectly natural for people to look instead to the communities and the groups that they already trust, the ones they identify with. And that puts a heavy burden on the leaders of those groups to make sure that for their communities, they really are making sure that the information they're spreading is trustworthy, that it is scientifically grounded. And, and what we've seen play out here is that that hasn't always been the case. Uh, leaders for a variety of reasons have either politicized it or have drawn, not drawn on that information to, to push their followers in the right direction. Yeah, I'll add one point to that, which is, you know, when you're thinking what went wrong in the United States, where over 600,000 people so far have died of coronavirus, um, it's useful for scientists to think of what's the control condition. And so you don't have to go far to see a really good control condition, which is just drive north across the border to Canada. And they have polarization there. They have a liberal party, a conservative party. But there was a really great study done on the rhetoric of leaders in Canada and whether they were liberal or conservative. Members of both parties, leaders of both parties took it seriously from day one. And then when you looked at surveys of all of across Canada, of all Canadians, you found that it didn't matter what party you supported or what your politics were. You took it seriously. And there was an analysis suggesting that if the U.S. had just taken it as seriously as Canadians had across the spectrum, it would have saved over 100,000 lives. By now, you know, that study's outdated. It might have saved like 300,000 lives. So you're just talking about the simple role of leadership in mobilizing people around a common threat and how significant that is. You know, I don't know if we'll live through something else again of this magnitude where, where identity matters as much as it did now. It's such an interesting theme, isn't it? Because so often we're told that themes of identity are about ex exactly the themes we've talked about there, about polarization, about division, about schisms uh, between between people in society. And yet, I guess, at the heart of what you're saying is that done well, the New Zealand example being the obvious one, done well, identity should be about giving us collective strength. It should be about drawing us together. It should be, you know, quite often the examples we see of shared identity in the in the wake of natural natural disasters or big terrorists, it's that shared identity. It's the fact that barriers are broken down between people that gives people this sense of collective strength. So um, it's it's been unfortunately, I guess, very expertly used by cynical politicians. Is the truth? You know, it's incredibly potent. Uh, science that's been unfortunately fallen into to the wrong hands. And, you know, we, we see uh, examples of that through history. I'm really intrigued then how we can bring this into smaller circles. So, you know, people might see their own workplace 
and think, okay, well, if identity is so potent and it is such an important thing, how could we, firstly, you know, how would identity impact a workplace? And then what are the things that we need to be aware of as we try to make use of it? I mean, we have a lot of pandemics specifically, and then we can sort of broaden out from there. But um, back to this theme that identities can be used for good or for ill, there's also lots of examples of it having these good consequences, even within the context of the pandemic, and often at a more local or smaller scale level, as, as you say. So with a group of colleagues uh, at my university, early on, we started a data collection project specifically focused in the United States, uh, but of people all across the country, at about 3,000 people initially, um, and we measured their levels of identification with groups that they belonged to that weren't necessarily the country as a whole. So we asked them questions about what groups are you finding particularly important right now as we go through this pandemic? And people would often name their employer or the charitable organizations they work with or their churches. Um, and a major one for people was their local community identities, which could include the places they work. And what we found was that the more people identified with their local communities, it had these smaller scale identities and felt that those groups were coping effectively with the pandemic, the better consequences they then showed for their mental health throughout the pandemic. So in April of 2020, when we were asked, how well do you think these groups that matter to you are coping with the pandemic? That predicted better mental health, less depression, less stress, uh, less anxiety related symptoms a full year later in um, March of 2021. And we're about to follow them up again. Um, but sort of exemplifying this, this idea that on the one hand, at the national level, identity is having these negative consequences in the context of the United States. But for people, identity is a multifaceted thing, right? You don't just have one identity, you have multiple identities. And as much as one might be having these negative consequences, another part of yourself, to the extent it's important to you, can have these positive effects. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that we try to drive home is the role of norms. So the first part is that people identify with different groups and there's ways to like cultivate a sense of shared purpose and identity at all kinds of levels, whether it's your community, your, with your work, um, with your nation. But once you have those identities, what matters for driving your behavior is really what you think is normative within your group. And so this is a place where, you know, being identified with a group, people often think it will lead to prejudice or discrimination. But groups that have norms around inclusion and, and embracing difference and diversity, uh, you know, engaging in constructive criticism and dissent, those are people who the more identified they get with the group, the more that they embody those values, the more that they're inclusive of others, even people who are outside the group, the more that they embrace dissent, share their own criticisms, uh, accept it and hear it from others. And so this is one of the myths that we want to tear down with our book is that you know, just being identified with a group doesn't immediately make you tribal or discriminatory or exclusionary or a conformist. In fact, it can do the exact opposite if you cultivate the right norms in your group. And so this is where people have power. They have influence over other people, not only by nudging them to identify a certain way, um, but also to kind of embody certain norms to uh, underscore how valuable those are. Uh, and this is especially true of leaders who people look for to signify what the norms and values of a group are. And if a, if a leader says something, you know, mission value of a company is something on, on paper or on the website, but it's not actually embodied by the leadership of the organization or people on the ground, they'll, they won't follow what's in the mission statement or the value statement. They'll follow what the norms are. And so this is why you really have to think carefully, not only about building identities, but what are those identities? What are the norms and values that 
are embodied and enacted on a daily basis. Um, because people will often follow us even unconsciously, unthinkingly, they start to enact those things. And, and uh, one of my favorite studies on this is uh, American identity. So Americans think of themselves as individualistic and nonconformist. It's a huge part of being American. Um, but it turns out that the more you identify as American, the more individualistic you become, which basically means that individualism is a norm and it actually is a form of conformity in itself. Um, and so a lot of times we're doing something, we think we're being a, a, a nonconformist. Uh, often it's because we identify with a group that values that. And so that just shows you the power that people aren't even aware that when they're doing this, it's part of uh, conforming to a norm. I think you made a really critical point along the way there, you know, that quite often we see themes of identity or uh, identity politics and we think, oh, this is the advent that's, this is the reason why we're so divided. And, you know, uh, to your point there, that establishing norms that are actually we welcome dissent or we welcome, you know, uh, we, we welcome sort of playful interactions with each other. I saw John Cleese, the British comedian, talking about how all humor is critical. And so if you establish a norm where people can't stomach criticism, then by its very nature, this is antith- antithetical to, to comedy. And he, and I guess, in truth, though, identity and being part of strong groups doesn't have to be an antithetical to comedy. It just has to have the norm that you establish is that, look, you know, we are we've got a playful sense here. We, you know, in, in good spirit, we're all we're all open minded or comedy nights might have that sense. And mm-hmm. I think quite often these things are presented as they are at the end of fun. And, you know, we're, we're never going to be able to smile or, or poke fun at ourselves again because everyone's too sensitive. And, and I, don't, I don't think that's factored in. Go on, Jay. Yeah, I, I was going to say I love comedy. And in fact, where I live in New York, it's one of the best like uh, live uh, stand-up comedy uh, venues called uh, uh, Comedy Cellar. If you're ever in New York, you should check it out. It's one of the cheapest and best things you can do in New York. And one thing that comedians do that are really effective is they – um, in, engage in a process when they get on stage of self-deprecating humor. And so they start knocking you down or they knock themselves down to your level of the audience to build a sense of camaraderie and trust in, in the environment. They're not just mean-spirited. Great comedy often is self-reflective and is, is self-deprecating. And so I think that this is something that, that leaders should think of too. If they want to create a culture where they signal that it's okay to give criticism, they have to be the first one in line to accept that criticism and create that norm. Mm. And, and I will say this, um, one of my favorite studies on what makes teams and groups successful was done by Google, where they analyzed all 300 teams across the organization and they tried to figure out, you know, using Google's a very like uh, smart, quantitative organization. They wanted to crunch the numbers, see what predicts team success. And so they looked at like personality styles, you know, companies spend a lot of money on uh, measuring personality styles. That doesn't predict success. They looked at like who goes out to the pub after for a beer after work versus just tease each other at work. That doesn't predict success. The factor they found that predicted team success is uh, psychological safety. And what psychological safety is in an organization is different from you know, how it gets portrayed in the news. It doesn't mean a, a space where you can't criticize each other and everybody's on edge. It means the exact opposite. Psychological safety means Dominic can criticize me. I do. And, and, <laughs> and it means that, that I still want to like hang out with him the next day, right? And that he's not kicked out of the group if he criticizes me or criticizes the, the leader in the group. And so that means that everybody feels like they're such a valued core member of the group that they're not like 
in a precarious state where they might get kicked out at any moment for saying the wrong thing. That's right. And so that's really fundamental to group success as you create a culture where you can all criticize yourself. And, and the leader sets that tone. One of the world's leading experts on, on this idea of psychological safety is a psychologist called Amy Edmondson. And she's done this amazing work looking at how this plays out in real world organizations, often in really high pressure environments. So this study we talk a bit about in the book, which we love, where she studied surgical teams in a hospital uh, who did heart surgery. And they were transitioning from the techniques they'd used before to a brand new technique and it was actually a really difficult transition to make. It was a new skill set and required a lot more cooperation among the team than they'd had to have before. And these surgical teams are people with different expertise, but also different status levels, right? You've got the surgeon at the highest status level who's the leader, but then you've got anesthesiologists and you've got nurses and you've got, and they've all got to work in perfect coordination or your patient dies. And they're also trying to learn something new at the same time, something difficult. Um, and so she studied what, what caused these teams to be more or less successful and really pinned it down to this psychological safety and looked specifically at what did the leaders of these teams do where they created this environment. And they did exactly what Jay is saying with the comedians, that these surgeons on the most successful teams made sure to break down that status barrier as much as they could to make everyone on the team, whether you're the surgeon or the nurse or the anesthesiologist, feel like you're an equal contributor, that your voice is valued. Because in that context, it's absolutely crucial that anyone who notices a problem can speak up, right? It doesn't matter who you are. If you think the surgeon is making an error, you better point it out or the patient's going to die. Um, and so the leaders really took that seriously. The ones that were effective took it seriously, tried to break down that status dimension as much as they could, and then make sure everybody was on board with what the mission was, right? Like, what does it mean to be successful? Let's, let's understand that voice is a part of that. Now, I was really fascinated. On, back a while ago, I had Anita Williams-Woolley on the podcast talking about collective intelligence. And so I was intrigued to see that uh, you talk about repeating some of her work, but, but taking it a little bit further. So Anita Williams-Woolley talked about the, the intelligence of groups. In fact, you repeated it um, with, I liked the, the, the uh, brain scanning twist. So you, you had something that allowed you to to read uh, brain waves or brain activity of people, and, and I was just intrigued f with the findings of that. I'd love you to share what it teaches us about working in groups and working in teams. Yeah, one of the I mean, Anita Woolley does this amazing work on what she calls collective intelligence, and the basic point is that some groups are smarter than the sum of their parts. They are better at problem solving, creative solutions. Um, and so it's really not the, who has the smartest genius in their group that succeeds. It's people who are able to bring out the best and all the ideas in, in the team uh, to come up with the best solutions. And so we ran a version of that here in my lab at NYU. Um, and my student, Diego, uh, put, ran these studies where he put EEG caps on people's heads. And so we were able to measure for each individual in the group um, their brain activity, so electrical activity across their brain. And what we looked for is when are people in a team in sync versus out of sync? And this is something that, you know, if you're part of a great team, you kind of have a feeling of flow, like everything's going well. Um, but you often don't know why. You might not understand what's going on. And so by using the EG caps, we can kind of see what's going on that people might not even be aware of. And we found a few interesting things. The first thing we found is that um, people who, teams who are in sync, where the brain activity um, in different members of the group looked you know, very similar across everybody, and they might not even have been aware of this. 
um, performed better on these collective intelligence tasks. They were more creative, better at solving hard problems that required a lot of discussion. Um, and they were better than the best individuals or all the average of all the individuals on other teams. And the other key thing we did and where synchrony mattered the most was we had two conditions in this study. One condition, we made people like create a team name and they had like a little like a ritual of listening to music and tapping together. And they were also working for team prizes. And so the best team won, you know, hundreds of, I think it was like a hundred dollars at the end. Um, and we had them uh, in another condition, we randomly assigned the other half of our participants to do it as individuals. So they worked in groups of four, but they were all competing with each other. And they all had individual you know, code names instead of a team name. And what we found is that if you are part of a shared identity and you're working together for something, uh, a goal that all of you will benefit from, that's where synchrony mattered. For them, being on the same page predicted the best, for, best collective intelligence. It also predicted uh, cooperation and collaboration on... Um, economic decisions. So they were able to, they were willing to sacrifice more of their money to the group and the money got doubled and then everybody walked away with more money. And so they were able to maximize their performance on collective intelligence tasks and their performance on economic decisions and outcomes um, by sharing an identity. And once they were on that same wavelength, and I'm talking literally on the same wavelength, uh, that was the key to success, those two pieces. Is there anything that we could learn about that then when, when it comes to... Uh, the one thing I'm really struck by is that as increasingly we're not... A, a lot of us won't be working together five days a week anymore. And so the things that we might have got into synchrony about by casual discussions over desks or in the lunchroom now might have to be a bit more intentional in the way they're created. Um, and it, it strikes me that one of the things that we, I, I did some podcasts last summer talking about the growth of community managers or the, the growth of resource groups, these sort of identity groups where you might have black employees or gay employees or women employees who actually sort of build some really strong collective strength and affinity through those things. But I just wonder in a broader sense, how can teams that are a, a collection of disparate individuals, how can they build a shared identity or how can organizations build a overarching group identity? What would be the approaches that they would, bosses or team leaders would need to take to try and foster those senses of, of identity, the, the sense of usness that you speak so strongly about in the book? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you use the word intentional and I think that's the key that, um, in this moment in particular, as people are not in the same space as intentionality by leaders to create these identities and then maintain them seems really important. I mean, I think one of the lessons of the study Jay just described, which is a pretty simple lab-based study and also a lot of the work that's inspired us and that we've done over the years, shows how easy it is in some ways to create identities. We, we talk about other studies where it's literally the flip of a coin. You know, you, you flip a coin and say, you're on the red team or the blue team, or you're a lion and you're a tiger. And that immediately, for many people, creates a spontaneous sense of identity with the other people in that group, even if they've never met them in person. Um, it's like humans have a readiness for these identities. We're looking for them. And, and when we spot opportunities to affiliate with others, we often seize on them. These are, these are exciting. They, they energize us. It's a chance for cooperation and collaboration. 
So on the one hand, that's a really hopeful message for leaders trying to do this, that maybe it's not that hard, right? You can think of exercise that people could engage in at work where they talk about what they have in common and what their core mission is and what they're trying to accomplish together and maybe even engage in some ritualistic kind of movement activity. I mean, you can be inventive about it, but I think the challenge is how do you sustain that over time? Because although people have a readiness for it, um, whether or not that persists for the long run is, is a different question. And there, I think another aspect of the study that Jay talked a bit about with regard to the incentive structure really plays an important role. Organizations in many cases, including the sort of organizations we belong to at universities, incentivize people as individuals, right? It's about you and your performance. And that sounds a very particular message. Whatever group you're a part of, at the end of the day, what really counts, your salary, your promotion, and so on, is about you. And sometimes that might be accomplished by working well with your team. But when push comes to shove, you better stand out relative to others, even if you're on the same team. Mm -hmm. And I think the lesson from that study that Jay described as well as other research is that that's not the only way to incentivize people. You can incentivize collectives. You can reward people when their whole group does well. Or rather than promoting the best individual performer, you promote the best collaborators, the people who are the most cooperative, the people who are the most supportive of others. If you do that, then you're, I think, sustaining those identities that you've created in other ways. Yeah, I'll add two points. I mean, I'll give an example of what Dominic's talking about uh, in terms of rewarding people who are great group members. I, I gave a talk in the Canadian Space Agency. So this is like really smart, highly motivated people. And when you walk in, there's like a profiles and giant pictures of all the astronauts who've ever gone to space from across the country. And these people are famous. They get book deals. Um, they, they are, you know, on the front page of, of newspapers across the country. They're national heroes. Uh, and um, what you realize is that the amount of really smart, hardworking people it takes to put somebody in space because it's so hard to do and so high risk is enormous. There's an enormous team of people. And one thing I was really impressed by is they had a separate wall for unsung heroes. And these are the people working behind the scenes you know, chipping in and covering a shift, finding a solution to a problem, helping out others. And everybody on teams knows who these people are. They're often not the superstars. They often don't get most of the credit, but they're the linchpins of team success. And they had a, a wall of recognizing the unsung hero of every month. And I just thought that's like a key to a, that's like signals to me that that is a place where they have a culture of team success, that a, a mission launch or anything happening in space requires the dedication of a lot of people who will never be famous. They'll never be in the newspaper. Um, and, and every great team has those people. And so I think organizations could do a much better job of um, finding ways to reward those uh, cooperative and key individuals, as well as, you know, obviously your superstars, but they're never going to lack for recognition and awards. Um, and so I think that that is one of the keys for an organization. And then the second point that I'm going to make is really that as we move to these hybrid workplaces uh, in the pandemic, you know, Delta surging at the moment, we're recording this. Um, and so people are anxious about going back. Many people don't want to go back to work who've been working remote, um, either because they like working from home or uh, because they're scared. And so I also don't think we're going back to the way things were. We're going to have a new workforce going forward in many ways. And smart companies are going to embrace that. Um, what they need to do more is think about how they're going to build a shared identity. Because most of the other things can be done easily remotely. A lot of people can do their work remotely now, um, like we're doing this podcast from three different, very different places. Um, what they can't do is build a sense of camaraderie remotely very easily. In fact, I found moving my own lab remote, was one, that was one of the hardest things we did because 
Um, most of group cohesion is built informally. It's built through chats around the water cooler, uh, gossip, about chit-chat before and after meetings. It's not part of the official meeting. Um, it's by swinging by somebody's office to help them celebrate a success or birthday. And so this is where leadership and teams and organizations are really going to have to think very consciously about this stuff that's missing that they're not even aware of because they're not going to feel it right away. Um, but when you don't have a shared purpose and shared identity, as our book <laughs> drives home over and over again, teams perform worse. Their collective intelligence drops, their cooperation drops, um, their performance drops. And so that's one of the invisible ingredients of team success and makes teams greater than the sum of their parts. Um, but if you're not cultivating it in a very conscious way, you're going to have breakdown in either in the short term or the long term. And it's going to be especially in moments where you require cohesion, where there's been a crisis or problem um, or a big issue where having constructive dissent might be really critical and people feel uncomfortable doing it online uh, because they normally would do it informally in someone's office. Those types of things have been lost in a lot of companies. And you're going to see more and more, I think, the difference between organizations that are conscious about building a shared identity and those that neglect it over time. It really strikes me that um, quite often, certainly in the world of business, there's a lot of discussion about company purpose and company mission. And quite often, when you really dwell into when that succeeds, it tends to be rather than sloganeering or this sort of this uh, this masthead that people are sort of marching towards, it it is about a shared identity. It is about what people feel that they've got empathetically in common with each other, what, why they care about it. And yet that identity part, because it sounds more complex and it sounds more sophisticated to accomplish, it often gets discarded and it becomes, by the way, our new purpose is this, this is what we're doing it for. And if people want to achieve something that actually feels more successful, more meaningful, Thinking about identity seems like a, a better way, a better destination to head off towards, rather than necessarily uh, a, a gathering of words which purpose or or mission can be. What's your thoughts on that? I think that's a hundred percent correct. I think identity comes first. Identity comes before mission, or it's another way to put it: it's what puts the power behind the mission or the goals. Um, that if you have a strong identity in a group, the mission can be whatever, right? That in fact, you can change the mission on a dime and people will adapt very quickly in pursuit of the new set of goals. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, military units, which often are known for having extremely high levels of cohesion, it's something military is often pretty good at building, right? What soldiers are asked to do in different contexts might be radically different. Like one day they're thinking about, you know, challenging an enemy. The next day they're digging a ditch. Uh, and the next day they're building, you know, latrines. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. There is a broad sense of mission, but the goals, especially in the day-to-day -day sense, uh, can be dramatically different, hour-to-hour, day-to-day. And I think we often lose sight of that in organizations where, where yeah, there's a focus on what's the mission statement or what's the sort of very high level, often very abstract sense of what we're trying to do. It's not that that's unimportant, um, but what's driving people, what's getting them excited, what wants them to make, you know, wants them to make them cooperate and collaborate with each other is the identity that they have something in common, that they're pursuing it collectively. And the, the it isn't always the most important thing. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of an organization that's run well is, a, is sports teams. And, and in this case, it's the New Zealand All Blacks, which is for many decades has been the world's best uh, rugby team. 
And they have a lot of uh, cultural philosophies that are built around shared identity. Uh, one of my favorite ones is they have like a, a no assholes rule, essentially, that no one, no matter how good they are, is bigger than the team. Um, another thing they have is that uh, philosophy of, it's called leave the jersey in a better place. And what this means is that you're not only part of this team right now for this season or for your career, you're part of a tradition that precedes you and will continue long after you're gone. And your goal is to help get this organization even better than, so it's better that when you leave it than when you arrived. And so the next people who join the team after you've retired are in a better place to even be more successful. And so uh, great leaders, one of the key skills that they uh, have, and we talk about this in our chapter on leadership, is narratives. The human brain evolved in small groups, as we said, and the way that we communicated was not over email or Twitter or, um, you know, uh, you know, these podcasts. It was by telling stories around a campfire with other people and passing a story on from one person to the next. And so the human brain is really drawn, attracted intrinsically to narratives and, and a narrative arc and a story with a sense of purpose. And so great leaders, if you look throughout history, are able to take a situation and frame it in a narrative and give a sense of purpose to, to a group in that narrative. And so this is fundamental to, to team success. And it's also something that's deeply attractive and appealing to people. And again, we're scientists. We can go full circle back to the talk about the pandemic. Um, convincing people to do the right thing in the pandemic is not just about giving them the best scientific information. Most people will never read a scientific paper in their lives. Um, they want to know that they're doing something that's important that has a higher purpose. If they're going to make sacrifices, it has to be meaningful. And so that's why you can't just communicate science by just sharing a bunch of graphs and figures and facts and, and scientific references. And, and most scientists don't realize this. You also need to have a story, a narrative, something that resonates with people that they can then share with somebody else in a compelling way and get them on board. And that's how you get real, like a, a ripple effect of organizational change or cultural change. It's through narratives and stories as well. That's right. I mean, I think one of the things we talk about in the book that's really important is that when, when someone identifies with a group, whether it's their organization or their country or their military unit, right, what's happening is it's shifting their motivation toward wanting to do what's best for that group. And what leaders do in part is help answer that question. Right. They're, they're providing a story and a narrative that's helping people understand this is this is where we're going. And therefore, this is, you know, the sort of things, the type of actions that are in the group's interest. And then people get excited about that. But the flip side of it is that people ultimately do have to answer that question for themselves. And they don't always come to the same answer. And as a leader, it's also important to recognize that, that if you have strongly identified employees or group members, they might be dissenting from you. They might be criticizing you because they think it's for the best interest of the group. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. You might vehemently disagree with what they have to say, but if they're identified, most likely they're not doing it to be destructive or to be harmful or, or to cause you to have a bad day. They're doing it because they care about the group. And there might be something for that reason worth listening to and paying attention to. It's back to your psychological safety point. Actually, right. you know, if the if the norms and the rules of the group are strong, then actually it can be consistent with strong identity, can be con consistent with dissent. Yeah, I think one thing, just to maybe finish up on this aspect of leadership, is when you have great leadership, you generate what's called engaged followership, which means the members of your team will figure out what the goal is and they'll be they'll creatively work to make it happen. And so when you have that, it means you don't have to monitor them. You don't have to track their hours at work or have them come in with a punch card or monitor their email. 
they're working behind the scenes constantly to make things better. And so this is, it becomes essentially a, a virtuous cycle once you have great leadership leading to engaged followership. And I think this is something that if an organization finds that it's having to monitor the behavior of every person all the time, which sometimes happens now that things have gone online, then that effectively means you failed in terms of your leadership strategy. <laughs> um, it's a sign that you've done something wrong and you need to fix it and you need to build a better sense of shared purpose. Um, because it's much better expense of your money and resources to figure out how to create a sense of shared purpose than to monitor and regulate and micromanage everybody. Um, and if anything, if you're doing that, you also get into what's the opposite, which is a vicious cycle. The more you micromanage and regulate and, and spy on everybody who's your employee or your team member, um, it actually makes them disidentify with the group because it signals they're not trusted and respected. And so you want to trigger, the goal of our book is to get groups and organizations, give them the tools to get in this vicious, or, uh, sorry, virtuous cycle and avoid uh, the vicious cycle. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think we've talked about a couple of myths of identity. One being that it's inherently tribal. You identify with the group, you're going to inevitably discriminate. Another myth is that identifying with a group causes you to lose your sort of individuality or agency, that, that everyone in a group is sort of working on mass thoughtlessly, mindlessly. And that's fundamentally not true. As, as Jay said, truly engaged group members are engaged followers. They're thinking creatively, curiously, deeply about how is it that we can accomplish it together and coming up with solutions for that reason that are far smarter and more interesting than what the leadership on their own could have come up with. That's why we get together in groups in the first place is to generate innovative ideas. We're in groups because we can do things in groups that together that we can't accomplish on our own. And that that's the key challenge we, we face. How do you create groups that do that? Wonderful. I've loved our discussion. It's such a, I think it's a timely consideration. We've seen at the societal level, the impact that this stuff can have. And I think as a lot of us are trying to work out how we can keep our teams together in an environment that's fundamentally changed, someone thinking about these themes of group identity actually is going to help protect and, and strengthen their organization. So really timely discussion. Uh, the book's out around now. I've put a link to it in the show notes. So um, so I'm, I'm thrilled. Thank you for taking the time to chat to, to me today. Cheers, Dominic. Thanks so much for having us. Thank Bruce. you. Thank you. Thank you to Jay and Dominic. Uh, really grateful for their discussion. Uh, like I say, I've, I've, you, you probably sort of got the impression I've spent a lot of time thinking about themes of uh, social identity, identity, some of the stuff that they discussed there. And so we, we just really had sort of uh, a dip into that. Uh, next up, we've got, uh, I'm going to publish that book club edition and then we i've got a discussion with a psychiatrist who's going to tell you why your personal uh, personal neuroses may not be a disadvantage for getting you on in your career thank you for listening see you next time planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.